to my heroes. If any of you have not heard this gentleman speak, you're in for a decided treat. He's a person who has tremendous qualifications for the message which he'll give us, not only because he has worked with people who have been addicted for years, but he also had the problem of alcoholism himself. He has just celebrated 25 years of sobriety, a quarter century of a new life. He not only has celebrated 25 years of personal sobriety, but he has worked with probably thousands of people and helped them also to arrest their addiction and to enjoy life without a drug or a drink. He is a very qualified individual as far as job, occupation, in the advertising field. He was advertising man of the year. And through a series of misfortunes and bad breaks, as he says, <laughs> there were some reverses in his life. For the past ten years, in addition to what he's been doing, he's been the director of the Midnight Mission in Los Angeles. I had the privilege of being at the Midnight Mission this summer. And it is a fantastic experience. Absolutely fantastic. This man not only helps people as their sponsor, but he also helps people whether they want to get drunk or don't want to get drunk or just wants to get fed. He evidences and he practices what Dr. Bob talked about, love and service. Clancy I is a person that loves people and he serves people. And tonight I learned something that I'd never known. I looked up there and I saw Clancy Emerson, B.S. <laughs> and I asked somebody what that meant and they said, Bachelor of Suave. <laughs> I know you'll enjoy him. I know I will. I give you my friend and a great member of the outfit I belong to, Clancy Emerson. Good evening. I, uh, unfortunately, because of the length of the introduction, we, and we do have a present to give, so we'll have to close the meeting now, but. <laughs> I, uh, I have snitches taking names all the way through this crowd, so watch it. I'm very happy to be here to, uh, be invited to talk to this distinguished gathering at CCAD. I want to see. Who am I? Clancy Immelsland, B.S. <laughs> I'm here to instruct you not to share. <laughs> I, thought, uh, I thought for the next few minutes I'd do a solo, if you don't mind. We'll have questions about 9 o'clock, right back there at that blue car. The, um, I want to welcome all of you, certainly, to this meeting. I want to, with these cameras here, I want to give a special welcome to all of the folks in the various half-measures rooms who couldn't be with us tonight. Uh, hope your dessert comes soon. No pictures. We, uh, 
But I've enjoyed very much. I couldn't get away uh, until last, until yesterday, so I didn't get here until last night, but I very much enjoyed. Today I want to give a special thank you to uh, Dr. Conway Hunter and to the staff of Charter Medical. And I want to thank him very much for sending out a distinguished retired colonel to carry my bags. <laughs> That's pretty good for a petty officer third. Hey, colonel, over here, dummy. And I've been treated very, very well here, and it's, it's really been a pleasure. My uh, sponsor spoke here two or three years ago, and he told me what an excellent uh, group this was, and Hal Marley, who will give our Sunday morning attitude of gratitude talk, has told me much about this, so I'm very pleased to be here. And I'm here tonight uh, to talk a little bit, if I may, about... Uh, I had a plan earlier. It's been probably 14 years since I've only been given an hour to talk. And I was wondering if I could just talk right on through and maybe they wouldn't know and they'd present me with that car. I was supposed to give it at 9 o'clock. Here you are, pal. But uh, I want to talk for a few minutes because I've heard a lot of talk today and I've enjoyed it, the meetings today. I was especially uh, impressed by uh, some of the meetings the young man who talked on the Vietnam problem and to Sharon this morning on the family situation. But I, uh, I want to say a few words tonight, if I may, about something that I have always felt very strongly about. And that is the this dreadfully difficult problem of understanding what an alcoholic is. It's a difficult thing for people who are non-alcoholics to understand. Unfortunately, it's a difficult thing for people who are alcoholics to understand. So nobody ever knows anything. And people just stumble through and wonder what the hell is wrong now. And to me, I'm sure there are many people like me. I had a great deal of difficulty in my life with my own alcoholism because I could not, I could not put it together with any definition of alcoholism I knew. The one great problem I think of the alcoholic who seeks help is that whether or not it is said to him or her, the impression is generally disseminated that Stopping drinking will somehow make it better. And when you stop drinking and it doesn't make it better, it's almost as sure as anything understanding in that mind. But you see, I am not really an alcoholic. And I know of no force that can convince one of it. Because... The one thing that is almost impossible to understand in the disease of alcoholism, it's remarkable how little known it is amongst alcoholics, amongst treaters of alcoholics, among facilities that deal with alcoholics, is, the, is that you are not dealing with the frame of reference. In, in other words, the, the sender is not and the receiver are, are on different wavelengths. And what is being said and what is being heard are two different things. And as a result of that, I waffled around 
attempting to stay sober for years in Alcoholics Anonymous and other facilities. I was hospitalized, and I, uh, I had a very difficult time. And at the end of all of those years, when I stood outside of a mission on Skid Row in Los Angeles, and the man in the mission had just told me, don't come back, you're not up to our standards. <laughs> I tried to reason with him, but I had just had my front teeth kicked out, and I was having a little difficulty with my consonants at that time. <laughs> so I listen here, you. If someone would have come by and put a lie detector on my arm and said, are you an alcoholic? I would have said, no, I am not, and that needle wouldn't have wavered. And I'm sure that probably of all the people who die from alcoholism are the people who have long and hideous lives. The great problem has always been, as I perceive it, is the, as you lie on your deathbed, you can always prove to yourself, but I am not really an alcoholic, while the family grieves and says, why don't you just admit it? And the, the folks in treatment places say, why don't you just admit it? We can help you. No. So we get a fragment of people, and of that fragment, usually communication is not made. I, uh, I had a uh, up-and-down life, and I always could prove alcohol was not my problem. I, well over 30 years ago, I attended my first AA meeting, and I didn't go there because I thought I was an alcoholic. I went there because my cellmate was the town drunk, <laughs> and I was just in there for fighting with police. He was in there for being a drunk. At that, I went through a spell at one time when I was drinking of, thinking I was Captain Justice, <laughs> and I would go around redressing wrongs in the community. On at least three occasions, I have found police arresting someone, stepped in and said, Stop! I fought the Japanese to preserve freedom, not to be ordered around by fascist pigs in blue coats. And I would explain that to them. And on three different occasions, I have gotten the man released. And I went in his place. <laughs> but, uh, that ended my Captain Justice phase. <laughs> but I was in there for fighting a policeman, and a uh, guy just came in. At that time, things were a little lighter, and, and he just said, uh, he came in to get Oscar, and Oscar was my cellmate, and he said, I've been reading about you in the paper, kid. You want to go to an AA meeting? I said, sure. Down over there. And it was very low-key at that time. I mean, Walk right out the front door of the county jail, across the courthouse square, upstairs of Luby's Meat Market, and a narrow room full of gray, burned-out old pukes. And uh, I really felt sorry for them. Because I was young and my life was ahead of me, and they were old. They were in their 30s and 40s. And, and I don't remember much. The memory I always have of that meeting, I can't be sure that's what was said, but as I recall... Just some old gray-faced fool saying, Friends, I drank around the clock for many years. I came through that door, and I've just never felt so goddamn wonderful. <laughs> and uh, my heart went out to him, I'll tell you. Because this was just a stopover. I went to a couple of meetings and just laughed it off. 
And I was, because I was going to be something. And I spent a lot of years becoming something. And I, I had a series of ups and downs. One spring I was nominated to be Junior Chamber of Commerce Young Man of the Year in the suburb of Chicago as a writer. I was writing in an advertising agency and I had a family and was putting it all together. This was in February. Through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, by the end of that same year, ten months later, I was playing piano in a whorehouse in San Francisco. Well, I'm not, as I often say, I'm not putting that down. That's kind of exciting for Lutherans, you know. Uh, but it's a hard thing to work into your resume later. It's just, you're just That's why people like me, and I presume like some of you, have resumes with holes in that say, self-employed during this period, uh, on a walking trip through Bavaria with friends. But I bumped into a guy out there. I was, I always reformed. I always, I used to blame the Lutheran church for that. I, I was raised in a very, very strict church, the Norwegian Lutheran church. You hear a lot of talk down here about Southern Baptists and, and we hear a lot of talk in AA now, especially just, it's overrun with Catholics. You know, just, I, uh, don't misunderstand me. I, I was, as a boy, I was taught to be afraid and distrustful of Catholics, but uh, I married a Catholic and I raised a family of Catholics and today some of my best friends are priests. Of course, I wouldn't want my daughter to marry one. Yeah. But we hear a lot of talking around alcoholism about the, the rigid structure of Catholicism and how it drives people to drink. Now, the nuns, when I was a child, they hurt me. You know. In our group in Los Angeles, we have three nuns, and they complain about the nuns. <laughs> and it makes it sound, if you're a Catholic, you have no chance. In the Norwegian Lutheran Church, if you can't make it, if you're too weak to live up to their standards, and you have to find an easier, softer way, you become a Catholic. <laughs> That's for people who simply must play bingo and smile from time to time. There's an old story, probably apocryphal, about Norwegian Lutherans are people who, after 30 years of marriage, would never make love standing up. Just on the fear that some passerby might think they were dancing. Uh, but I was raised in this rather strict regimen. And if, if nothing else, I understand what Hitler says when he said, you give me their minds till they're 12 and some there'll be Nazis inside of them for a while, for the rest of their lives. Because no matter what I did, as I grew older, I developed intellectual agnosticisms and atheisms and postures but somewhere inside of me when I felt weak and heavy laden the knowledge always came back you are going to hell and that's something you can't live comfortably with all the time <laughs> and every time I got down like I did in San Francisco I used to resent the Norwegian Lutheran Church it never made me good enough to stay good but it made me just good enough so I couldn't enjoy evil very long <laughs> And so whatever you were, you was about to change. So I ran into a guy, and he was hitchhiking to Texas. And my, I had a wife and kids in the Midwest, and I wanted to find some new home for them. So I hitchhiked to Texas. I tried to stay a town or two ahead of my family. <laughs> and uh, 
I worked very hard then. I started over again. I worked very hard at it. Another spring and a year and a half later, I was working days at an advertising agency. At night, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas directing a grand opera in the original Italian. That's kind of fun to listen to a Texan sing Italian. And I was writing a weekly sports column for the newspapers, which is kind of a wide diversity of interests, I thought. My wife came in. The one problem about marrying a Catholic, every time you reunite, you have a baby nine months and ten seconds later. (laughs) And uh, through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, by the end of that particular year, I was committed for an indefinite up to forever in the Texas State Insane Asylum at Big Spring, Texas. Not for drinking, I'm, I want to hurry up to add. Uh, I hadn't sunk to that. I, uh, I was in there as a suicide. I had uh, the dean of the university had called me and said, we understand you've been acting bizarrely in Juarez. And uh, didn't seem bizarre to me. But I went on the wagon. And when you're on the wagon with a pregnant wife and a bunch of little kids you've just reunited with and you're holding three jobs, it's enough to make you crazy. It really is. I used to go to Juarez from time to time just to relax. And uh, one day it just got too much. And I didn't know why. It just was just terrible. My wife took the children to church. I parked the car in the garage, fixed up a hose in the car, turned on the motor, went to sleep and died. Funny, huh? <laughs> And the neighbor heard the motor running and kicked in the door and came in and I was dead in the car and he pulled me out and beat on my chest and breathed in my mouth and he took me to the psych ward and examined me for a while and determined I was a schizoid, badly split personality and sent me for this indefinite stay at the insane asylum. I know that there are some very distinguished psychiatrists here and I'm sure you agree with me that probably is nothing is as bad as a missed diagnosis of a disturbed person. I have many, many times thought of going back. I may, I'll may i be in that city in about three months. I'm going to go back there and find that psychiatrist if he still has his license. <laughs> Take him by the shirt front, put him up against the wall and say, you ought to be ashamed. You examined me for ten days, almost steadily, and determined I was a dual personality. You shouldn't even be practicing. If I could have got my personalities down to two, I'd have been all right, for God's sakes. My problem is the group therapy I enjoy when I'm driving alone in my car. Well, I almost didn't get out of that hospital. I thought I'd been depressed before. This is... The Texas State Insane Asylum is one of your basic resume busters. That is truly a goodie. Uh, I escaped once and they brought me back. And the trouble with running away from nut houses in West Texas, as I've said many times, you suddenly realize they can see you running for three days. Then they you just, you know, and it's just a matter of time the field glasses pick you up. You're, well, there goes that little Yankee some bitch now. So they snatched me back and gave me an autumn full of shock treatments. And uh, the next year I had to work hard. Fortunately, they put an alcoholic ward. I'd been going to AA off and on for five or six years. So I knew how to act like an alcoholic. And I professed 
an interest in their program when a couple months later I was out. And the next year I was successful again. I was working in Dallas at the largest advertising agency in the South. My wife and I reunited. Nine months and ten seconds later we had another little child. I was working on these old ads. Some of you old people remember them. The uh, L.C. Nelmer ads for the Borden Company. They were quite... It's kind of hard to explain that to young people today. Well, what were these ads about? Well, these cows were all talking to each other, see? And, <laughs> and the calves would come in and they would talk. And, <laughs> really good. <laughs> and through a series of bad breaks and misunderstandings, and <laughs> I woke up one morning, a few months later, I was in the Phoenix, Arizona drunk tank. And as I mentioned, a guy had just kicked out my front teeth and I was... I was one of the few mornings that I was glad I'd spent several thousands of dollars in psychoanalysis some years before that. Because once you've really made an intense effort to get inside of yourself, you have insights that stay with you forever and really help you. I remember that morning I was so sick, I couldn't move my head out of the way this guy's shoe while he kicked my teeth out. But I was almost instantly able to identify his problem. I remember thinking to myself, this son of a bitch is overreacting. <laughs> when you, uh, that helps. And by that time, my wife had taken her, all her children, and moved to a post office box in Dallas. And uh, about four months later, I found myself standing on the sidewalk outside of the midnight mission in Los Angeles and told never to come back. And I'll tell you, if I knew anything, if I had anything left, it was that I'm... I wish I would have found out somewhere before I died what was wrong. I used to, maybe if you're a romanticist like I have a proclivity to be, I thought maybe I was born in the wrong century. Maybe I was supposed to be born somewhere else. Maybe, the, maybe there's some mix-up in the genes. But I should have been something. I should have, everybody said I should have been something. What in the world happened? And probably the most difficult days of my life were not spent because of physical problems, sickness, losing things. Because when you feel that bad, you don't want to think things aren't worth much. But just that terrible grinding conflict, what in hell is wrong? Sometimes I just do fine, and other times it just all goes to hell. And I couldn't explain why. And I, one morning it was raining and I stood there in my t-shirt and old pair of pants and tennies and no front teeth and I walked 71 blocks out to that stinking AA club to hustle, see if I could hustle somebody from the node to get to a different city where I could start over and maybe make it. And they begrudgingly left me and, and uh, let me in and it was so bad, so long, I couldn't get a score together. And somewhere over a period of time, in the next months and eventually years, the greatest gift of my life happened to me. I came to get a knowledge of what was wrong with me. Because it doesn't do any good to have answers if you do not believe the problem. I had, uh, I got a sponsor who didn't know how to be a sponsor. He knew how to be a tyrant, but he didn't know how to be a sponsor. I'd always, I'd try to find sponsors who give non-judgmental love. Uh, he was a terribly judgmental old fool. I'd say to him, Bob, I'm, I'm sleeping in this car and I'm cold. I was living in an abandoned car in the AA Club parking lot in mortal fear someone's going to come and reclaim my apartment house someday. 
as I'm cold and hungry and I used to be a big shot, Bob. I'm sick and I'm dying. What'll I do? Get a job. I said, look how terrible I look. She said, get a terrible job. One of his few directions I ever followed to the letter, I'll tell you. And uh, eventually I stayed sober, much to my surprise. By the time I was a year sober, I'd become a rocket to success. I'd worked up to wrapping packages in the back of an advertising agency. The same kind of job I'd had when I was 14 years old. When I was two years sober, somebody gave me a little job writing in a medical corporation. But by that time, I'd be come to believe in something, and so I went to work every day for a change. And by the time I was five years sober, I was director of advertising for that medical corporation. And by the time I was seven years sober, I was working in Hollywood and radio and television. And when I was down ten years sober, I was downtown working doing public relations with oil companies. I was fifteen years sober, I was marketing director for a publishing firm in Beverly Hills. Bought a home out by the ocean. My wife and all those children heard the crinkle of green in my wallet all the way to a post office box in Dallas, fled to my side, <laughs> attached themselves to me like a group of starving chiggers. <laughs> Nine months and ten seconds later, <laughs> I, uh, I became a national distributor for the Catholic Church, is what I read. And now I'm just an old Babbitt living in Los Angeles doing well. Now that's all of this story. It's a good, true story and it's valid. But that is what I want to talk about. I want to talk for a few minutes about the nature of my illness because I think that is the greatest bafflement to anyone in this field of alcoholism, either as a patient or as a treater or a treatee. Ah... Uh, how can you be an alcoholic, really? How can you be an alcoholic when your number one problem really isn't alcohol? That's the puzzlement of everyone with a drinking problem. I remember thinking, I do have a drinking problem. I can swap drinking stories, jail stories, nuthouse stories, being strapped in straitjacket stories with anybody. But unlike them... Being, I do it, I drink as a result of the emotions when I'm supposed to be feeling good sober. They get feeling good. I get feeling just dreadful. How can you be an alcoholic when your problem is not alcohol? I'm glad that I survived long enough to discover. For me, I suppose it's because a great many people like you and me have a tendency to become cynical. And cynics to me are idealists who cannot find a rationale for what's going on so they become cynical. I've never known any cynics who weren't disillusioned idealists. To me the problem was how can I be an alcoholic? And all of the story, there's something that is not always totally satisfactory in the answers you get when you talk to passers-by in Alcoholics Anonymous or in treatment centers. You know, when you, when you say, I think I'm just going crazy. What can I do? It doesn't always completely make you feel better to have someone say, Well, you keep coming back. <laughs> you get the feeling the intensity of your emotions is not being communicated completely. <laughs> I've got a cup 
I got a bunch of hot checks out if I don't cover them by Monday. They'll garnish my wages. I'll lose my job. What the hell will I do? Well, you just turn it over. I tried that once, and my higher power turned over to Sheriff Peter Pitches, and I don't that don't work. But I am glad that I survived. I'm glad that I fell into the hands of someone who would not debate my irrationality with me, but merely instead superimposed his will over mine, which was dreadful. In order for me to take actions which eventually allowed me to survive, to discover what to me makes this program and this illness a pragmatically understood thing. It's the hardest thing in the world, but once you begin to understand it, it really makes absolute sense. I had to survive long enough to discover one of the great truisms that I know about the world, and that is this. And it sounds upside down, but I firmly believe it. I had to come to believe that if my problem is alcohol, I am not an alcoholic. Or conversely, if I am an alcoholic, my problem is not alcohol. Now, doesn't that sound upside down? But that is, I believe that is the premise of every thing that has ever worked in the treatment of alcoholism. Isn't alcohol. Of course it's alcohol. We're treating you for alcohol. But it isn't. If the problem were alcohol, detoxification would cure it. If the problem were alcohol, detoxes would turn out winners. Hospitals would turn out all winners. Treatment centers would turn out all winners. Toilets would turn out winners. We're a gathering of specialists in this field, but still the classic American detox is the toilet. You know, it's... They get more customers than anybody else. That There aren't very many people who have a drinking problem who haven't knelt in front of the old porcelain altar early in the morning and gazed into those shimmering waters, <laughs> waiting for some kind of a meaningful answer to surface. <laughs> Say your morning prayer. Oh, God. <laughs> Hardly anybody ever stops at that moment and says, Hey, I'm getting a free detox. Some mornings when you get sick enough, your body will detox you from both ends at once, which is uh, good for your body, bitch on your nerves. You know, not only are you terribly sick, but you're called upon to make a series of split-second decisions. And every answer must be correct. There is no margin for error at that moment. You guess wrong just once, and now you have another problem behind you. <laughs> and if the, if the alcoholic has anyone left at that juncture, despite all this conversation we talk about supportive families, in my experience, if you have any alcoholics left, any family members, when you get to that stage, they give you the support of standing outside the bathroom door and saying, Good enough for you, you son of a bitch! Why don't you go crap on her floor? <laughs> but the one thing we can be sure of, you always get detoxed. In fact, you sometimes hear people who leave you to lead you to believe that. You hear them 
I've heard them. I, I guess I don't think they mean it. I got to believe they don't mean it, but that's what they said. Well, I was drinking, I was drunk, and I was just crazy. Then I got sober, and it was just wonderful. Then I got drunk, and I was just crazy. Then I got sober, and I was just wonderful. Then I got drunk, and it was just hideous. And you want to just say, why do you drink? You know, a person like you shouldn't drink. Shouldn't even touch it. But if the problem is alcohol, I've developed a solution to an alcohol problem that is infallible. Don't drink. And that's the end of that song. But if it turns out that people suffer from what I have suffered from, as we all know, the chances are well over 98% they will die from it. And the ones who do find some motivation to seek help, over those, will, over half of those will die from it. And on and on and on. The survivors are just a smattering because of the inability to become aware of the nature of the illness. Through no fault of anybody, just a lack of somehow getting it through. And what is, what is the problem? If it isn't alcohol, what the hell is it? It's something that sounds like alcohol, and we talk a lot about alcohol. But it's got nothing to do with alcohol. It's something called alcoholism. You say, what the hell is the difference between alcohol and alcoholism? It's just, a, it's just pedantry, some sort of sophistry to add a little ism on the end and say that means something else. Not true. That little suffix is what I firmly have come to believe, and I see it reinforced every day of my life, is what makes people like me, and many people like me, terminally ill, and on the other hand, if I can get some handle on it, gives me the only chance I will ever have in this world to live with any degree of comfort. And we could talk for hours on medical and psychiatric aspects of it, but it boils down to this in the last analysis, I believe. If your problem is drinking, when you stop drinking, you are recovered. The funny and dreadful and perplexing and deadly aspect of alcoholism is you just you hardly you never even find it out till you die from it almost. Stopping drinking has no effect on alcoholism whatsoever, except to make it more painful. That is the difference. But you, whoever heard that? Now, how can? What do you mean it doesn't make it any better? Of course it does not. There's a certain surge when you get sober in which you're going to make everything all right again. You're going to make up for lost time and do these things, and your life's going to straighten out. It's going to be better. But it doesn't take very long before the ogres come back. The anxiety and the tension and the frustration and the loneliness. Not the loneliness of being alone, but the loneliness that afflicts you when you're standing in crowds of people. And the resentments and the feelings of inadequacy that sometimes just choke you. And other times the feeling of superiority that make you wonder, what are you doing with these people? and on and on. And one day it, it gets little by little and it builds and builds and one thing that's reinforced. But I'm not drinking. I'm not like that. These are real problems. If I could only make things, if I could just get things right. I remember sitting in Dallas. A new television program had just come on. I used to sit and watch that once in a while when I was able to see it. Is something called Father Knows Best. And I think, that's all I want. You know, I've got children. 
But there's no bud or princess or kitten around here. A bunch of screaming people running through. And that old beast in the kitchen isn't Jane Wyatt, I'll tell you that. It's just not easy being Robert Young alone in Dallas, Texas. But all I've ever wanted was to have things be right. And I couldn't get them right. And I never drank ever because I felt I had a drinking problem. I drank to relieve when the rubber band was pulled too tight. And one day you get to a point where you just can't hardly stand it. You get up and the world begins to gray out. I don't mean that it literally turns gray. It emotionally turns gray. Everything gets gray. The job is gray and the people are gray and the house is gray and the children are gray and it's just that old hole forms in your gut again where the wind blows through and you're sober and you're trying to make up for lost time and you're just surrounded by grayness it's almost intolerable now even that doesn't make you an alcoholic as we all know there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who get just like that who are not alcoholic they are known medically as acute or intense neurotics people who see reality but react badly to it who react emotionally who react obsessively who are unable to maintain a median in their reaction these people again some of them are so intense that unless something happens to slow them down they snap and become what is known as psychotic and again to way oversimplify it Psychosis really is when, under great pressure, your brain makes things look different than they are in order to resolve the conflict. Now, funny thing, alcoholics almost never become psychotic. Alcoholics rarely ever become psychotic. And that's a funny thing because of general badinage of alcoholic lexicon is that Alcoholism is the second greatest cause of insanity. And it is. But not from that. Alcoholic insanity is caused by sufficient alcoholic use in the body to eventually desiccate enough brain cells so the patient is no longer able to function. We sometimes think, I'm thinking I'm going crazy. If you think you're going crazy, you're not going crazy. Because alcoholic insanity doesn't affect you that way. I don't know if you've ever seen cases of alcoholic insanity. I see them almost every day, and I wish I didn't. People with alcoholic insanity sit in a chair or on a bed and people come and change their diapers three times a day and feed them and put them to bed and get them up and change their diapers and feed them. And they never, ever, ever get better. At least it's very much like tertiary syphilis, except tertiary syphilis has the decency to kill the patient. Alcoholism keeps them sometimes alive for 40 years like that. But alcoholics rarely become psychotic from conflict. Why? When it gets bad enough, long enough, they'll drink alcohol. So it begs the question, why don't these neurotics drink alcohol? And they do, some of them. But then they find no one ever seems to understand this. But alcohol doesn't relieve the pressure for them. That's why they are not alcoholics. It turns out alcohol has to have a special effect on people. It has to have a special effect that neither the person nor usually the person surrounding the person understand at all. 
And we get a lot of misunderstanding what that a special effect is. So, well, it makes you stay drunk all the time. Not true. I think it's safe to say that there, it's physically impossible for a human body to stay intoxicated 14 straight days and nights under laboratory conditions. And it's certainly less time than that on the street. Is it that you just act crazier than all this? You're crazy! No. In fact, most alcoholics I have known handle alcohol, given amounts of alcohol, better than most people. At least for a long time. The um, alcoholics are always talking about how they were the ones who drove people home. What's the worst night of the year to be out? New Year's Eve. Why? The social drunkers, the social drinkers are drunk. It's just hideous out there. <laughs> they don't know how to, they don't know when they're going to throw up. They, you know, most alcoholics have at least 15 seconds, you know. <laughs> Pardon me, just a minute. Anybody got any gum? <laughs> these people don't have enough experience with these symptoms. You can be talking right to them. So I said to Bill, I said, Bleah, uh. <laughs> They don't know how to drive like this. <laughs> Probably the worst curse I can tell you about. You see some of them doing things like this. I'm feeling a little tiddly, Margaret. I guess you'd better drive us home. If any alcoholic ever said that, I'd be sick with remorse. <laughs> the correct answer is, It's my goddamn car! And I'll drive my goddamn car! <laughs> just, I'm not going to give up when I'm at the top of my game. There's a special effect. What is that special effect? Hardly anybody, nobody who's got it ever knows it. Ever. If they're lucky, they may find out sometimes after they've lost it. It turns out, alcohol does something special for me that it doesn't do for most people. What is it that it does for me? It has the effect. I never knew it. I never knew anybody who knew it. I left us sober a long time. It has the effect of almost instantly altering my perception of reality. It almost instantly alters my relationship to my environment. It almost instantly makes me larger and more self-contained and them smaller and less threatening. And I had no idea that it was something different happening to me. I just took it as a, one of the few bonuses in the world that I felt better. And that's why the big problem, the big problem the alcoholic is. Sooner or later, alcohol begins doing something to him. And the negative result of this for, the against of it, it turns, it seems to be, and it's true nearly of almost all addictive chemical addictions, but it's certainly true in alcoholism, that if it relieves conflict for you, one of two things happens. You either, if you've never developed any tools for dealing with conflict, you never do develop any, or if you have developed develop them, they begin to atrophy. And it's almost as though the threshold of pain diminishes, little by little by little. And things that you might use to be taken stride now become insoluble conflicts, and on and on, which makes it so baffling to the people who try to help people like me, and it makes it baffling to the person inside. You, we got you back on your feet, and everything is all right. 
Why did you do this? And it's dreadful. I don't know why. I just felt bad. And unfortunately, you can't recreate emotional pain, so you can't even explain it. I don't know why. Just, just dreadful. And that is why nearly all alcoholics die from it. That is why all, nearly all alcoholics get helped. And sooner or later, you and I both know, sooner or later, most of them go down the toilet. No matter what our literature says or what we tell anybody, we know it. Now, the reason that's important to understand, I think, is that I will remember, and I trust we will all remember when we try to deal with others, that we are dealing with people who are looking at things from a different perception than we are. And somehow or other, we have to superimpose over that perception if we're going to help them. Just saying, do good, is not going to get the answer. Or do what you think is right is terrible. Or how does it look to you? They're going to lie anyway. I don't know a better way to put it. I, I sometimes think about this as an analogy. And I know it works in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know it works in some forms of treatment. But like this curtain back here. My sponsor's treatment of me was just dreadful at the time. It's as though he would say to me, Clancy, say that backdrop, that's pink. I think, it's not pink. <laughs> you crazy old bastard, what does that mean? So that's pink. Well, I don't believe it's pink. I can see it. And you say, nobody cares what you think. You act like it's pink. Now, we never talked about the colors of drapes. We talked about the colorations of emotions. He'd say, I don't care how it looks to you. Go over and apologize to her. Apologize to that bitch? <laughs> Did you hear what she said to me? I don't care. Not yet. I don't care how it looks to you. Don't quit that job. They're using me. <laughs> Nobody cares. And on and on. He, at one time, I was, if I'd had the money, I'd have called the World Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was planning on doing this and saying, I just want you to know there's a man in California killing newcomers. <laughs> it's kind of a funny twist of fate that now when I talk to the World Service Office in New York, I say things like, no, I'm not. Uh, what goes around comes around and that's why I think it's so important to remember that we are not going to emotionally or rationally or intellectually cure someone's alcoholism by giving them data or information even if they can believe it they can't sustain it because the problem is not one of lack of education, it's one of erratic perceptions of reality. Emotional perceptions that bring about a different reaction within me. I, in my era, when I got sober in the late 1950s, there weren't hardly any treatment centers around. There were a few sanitaria. I had been in a couple sanitaria, but treatment centers are pretty much a product of the last 20 or 25 years, some older than that, but nearly all of the, the full flush. 
And people from my era have traditionally sneered at the treatment center. And I led the, I led the pack of sneerers. And I, uh, over the years, however, much to my, much to my surprise, my perceptions of treatment centers have changed to an extent. I now believe that there are certain treatment centers that are absolutely magnificent. I still believe there are treatment centers today who are killing alcoholics, right and left. And it's that particular difference is what gives treatment centers, a lot of them, a bad name they don't deserve. But they're still doing it. And as far as I'm able to perceive and understand, I know there are still people today who say, why do they go to the treatment center anyway, for God's sakes? AA's free. Why spend ten grand to have somebody fill you full of data for a month? Now, there's I can understand that. I sometimes, I thought of an analogy a few months ago that explained that to me. It's as though I went down to the beach in Santa Monica and I wanted to go to Catalina. And here's a nice, trim, good-looking, clean, small yacht that says SS Treatment Center. And orderly, well-dressed people saying, why don't you come aboard? And yummy smells coming out of the galley. And further down the beach, there are two guys skulking around behind some bushes. You want to go to Catalina in an invisible boat? <laughs> Nobody in their right mind is going to go to an invisible boat if they got something they can take. And you get on the SS treatment, and it does everything it says it does. It does. You get rest, you get replenished, you get strengthened, you get full of help. The only trouble with the treatment center in the long pull is that just as it gets out of sight ashore, it has to say, well, this is as far as we go, pal. We're turning back now to get the next load. But I met a Catalina. Swim like a sumbitch. <laughs> You're in better shape. You should be able to handle it. And you do. And pretty soon here come these two idiots by in their in invisible boat. You want to ride in our boat? I'm not that sick. <laughs> and you almost drown. <coughs> and here they come again. Yeah, I'll, I'll get in. And once you get in and dry it off, you realize there's no boat here. These are two guys floating above the water in some kind of trick. And I'm standing above the water. But it's crazy. What am I supposed to do, you guys? Grab an oar. <laughs> there's no oar. There's no boat. You're goofy. Until you're almost drowning again. Here they come. You want to ride? Yes. <laughs> What'll I do? Grab an oar. Oh, you silly bastards. And the irony, the irony of that boat is, it doesn't begin to appear until you begin to row. And when you begin to row, there's nothing to row. It really is a paradox. That's why it helps to be desperate. <laughs> and eventually, as you row, the boat gets bigger and larger and more comfortable. And hopefully, pretty soon, you don't even want to go to Catalina. Let's just stay on the boat. And the only sad thing about it is, sooner or later, most people think, I'm doing just fine. And they put their oar back for a while. And then the other irony takes place. The boat begins to disappear. 
and one of two things happen. You either say, I better row again, or you can say, this didn't work either. The one thing that makes AA, in my opinion, the only viable solution, it gives you the only continual oar that keeps the boat visible. Now, what has that got to do with the healthy treatment center against the unhealthy treatment center, in my opinion? And that is this. The unhealthy treatment centers, and there are a few of them around the country, who still either, I support this, I have to, to give them the credit, say they must believe it. But it's shocking that they do. Who somehow think they will take this disease of alcoholism, and in 30 days, or 60 days, or 90 days, or two weeks, or in some finite period, will give you sufficient intellectual information to overrule your entire perceptions of reality. Can't happen. But they go out and say, it's okay now. And they send them out in the world, by God, to die. And the healthy treatment centers that I know, the ones that I'm familiar with, do almost the same thing except for one little thing. They say, we have to turn back now. Watch out for two dumb bastards in an invisible boat. They're going to be along pretty soon. And hop in. And that is the main, because I think that the treatment procedure is absolutely vital in so many people. But I have to be, and you must be aware, that there is no period of time that will remedy next year's emotional misperceptions. There is no, if data could do it, we'd all be home free. The author of the leading book on counseling died drunk. I watched him slip himself to death over the years in Los Angeles because he knew so much about the subject he could not believe he would have to surrender and take those infantile actions. Knowledge is not enough. Information is not enough. It helps, but only upon the basis of an emotional support. That's why I think that AA has been very... I don't think the people that founded AA had any idea what the, what the hell they were really doing as far as psychological introspection is concerned. For example, they... Uh, I don't think they knew that they were creating the first behavioral modification therapeutic. I don't think it ever came up. And all the time they ever met in Akron. Uh, what, do you, what do you call this? Oh, just a basic behavioral modification therapeutic. But that's exactly, I think, what makes AA so successful. It is not predicated on knowledge. Most every therapy in the world that deals with disturbed people says this you come to us we will change your thinking and eventually your actions will change AA says you come to us we will change your actions and eventually your thinking will change they were lucky enough to discover people like me don't have time to wait for my thinking to get better I have to have something to do a long time before that. <laughs> and that's why I got to remember that I am not, I cannot impose my perceptions on other people's distorted perceptions. I have to deal with them as, 
with a series of actions that are apparently have no application to their problems. Only I know it does, and you know it does, and we must insist upon it. You cannot reason with terminal illness. Reasoning with an alcoholic is on a continuing basis or compromise saying you really don't have to do this or maybe you don't have to do this is just the same as trying to reason with someone with a carcinoma in their breast and say well I like you therefore you don't have to have it removed we people like me and I'm sure like people like you we have one thing in common we have different backgrounds the one thing we have in common is that we must deal on a daily basis with people whose perceptions make their actions absolutely impossible to understand. Understandable sometimes, and then for no apparent reason, non-understandable. There's no sense being appalled by it. There's no sense throwing up your hands. There's no sense saying there's no help for these people. Somehow or other, they must be given sooner or later the instruction that they must grab an oar they can't see to row a boat they cannot believe in. And eventually it happens. Sometimes today, People forget about the experience of the Washingtonians who did very much the same thing as we're doing. They had a lot of people sober in the 1840s and 50s and they were so carried away by their success they wanted to help people who were caught up with laudanum. And they wanted to help people who had all sorts of problems. And they got so wrapped up in all the good they could do that they completely vanished from the face of the earth. Today there are still people who say, why doesn't AA take in narcotics addicts who are not alcoholics? Why doesn't AA help the gambler? Why doesn't AA? For one reason. The only thing that differentiates AA from any other therapeutic that's ever worked with alcoholics is that it boils down to this. One alcoholic talking to another and being able to identify with perceptions that other people can't understand. That's what it's about. That's what makes AA uniquely successful. That seems to be, I know there are people who stay sober without AA. There are also people who go to Las Vegas and beat them at craps. But I don't know any of them personally. <laughs> the whole concept is somehow, we must remember, alcoholism, this hideous disease of perception that kills nearly everybody who's got it. And not even quickly, but over a long period of painful, degrading, frustrating, anxiety-ridden days, plus adding all of these emotions to the people who frantically try to help them, like you and me. And that's why we have to remember, there is you cannot compromise in the treatment of alcoholism. Love is not the answer not love as we understand it, love measured through altering actions that will gradually over a period of time alter perceptions. I think the net result you try to achieve in an alcoholic is not to make them any better at all. Because I don't think they ever see that they're any better. What happens is the rest of the world shapes up just little by little. And if you stop doing it, they find out and act badly again for a while. That's why we continue to do it. I am uh, I'm glad to be here tonight. I thank Dr. Hunter. I thank the staff. I thank you. God bless you. Good night.